The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So continuing our um, exploration of the Four Noble Truths, we've covered over the last number of weeks the first three Noble Truths, although I'll recap just briefly here. And today we'll start on an exploration of the Eightfold Path, and I expect this exploration will take a while. Because the way I'm exploring this, the way I'm interested in exploring this is not just to to talk about each one, um, you know, as one thing, but but to really explore because there's one teaching that says all of the teachings of the Buddha, everything that the Buddha taught over his 45 years of teaching can be um, kind of subsumed by the Four Noble Truths. And so what I'm doing essentially through this series is exploring as we go through each piece a variety of the teachings that are related with each part. And so as we go through the Eightfold Path, um, we'll pause with each one and look at what are the teachings that come in and, and uh, point to this particular, uh, this particular path factor. And so I think the first thing that we have to do in terms of exploring The Four Noble Truths, I mean, the Four Noble Truths is really a, it's a teaching around suffering. It's a teaching around distress, dissatisfaction, unease. The Pali word is dukkha, and it's often translated as suffering. But that word, in our language, often means something much more um, big (laughs) than what is conveyed by dukkha. I mean, dukkha does include the big things does include what we would call suffering in English, but it also includes the subtlest forms of distress or unease or feeling of offness. Just like, yeah, things just don't quite feel right. Wish it were a little bit different. Well, it's okay, but that kind of experience is also included in this uh, realm of dukkha, of, of Tanisaro uses a translation of stress, which, which points to two things. It points to both the subtlety that it can have and also that, it, that what the Buddha was talking about, the kind of suffering the Buddha was talking about here, is mind-made. Is not, uh, he, in exploring suffering, the kind of suffering that uh, he was curious about, his question was, is it, free, is it possible to be free of suffering? Free from stress? Free from dissatisfaction? And in his exploration of that, he realized, well, there's certain things, you know, like pain in the body, that is a function of having a body. And it's that kind of suffering, that kind of uh, what we would call suffering if we, like, cut ourselves with a knife or fall down and break a leg. You know, the pain of that is just a part of being human. And so that is not the kind of suffering that the Buddha said is possible to be free of. But any mental reactivity to cutting ourselves with a knife, any mental reactivity to falling down and breaking our leg, that is what is possible to be free of. And so the the first two noble truths, the truth of suffering and the truth of the arising of suffering, are sometimes talked about as the truth of the, um, the source of suffering, points to this, that the... Um, the suffering that is being referred to is this mental reactivity to what is happening and is summarized in the second noble truth as being craving as the kind of base uh, movement of mind that, or the basic movement of mind that is, leads to all the forms of distress. So craving things to be other than they are wanting something to stay that's slipping through our fingers, wanting to get rid of something that is unpleasant, this kind of neediness about having to need things to be a certain way. This is the um, kind of one of the, the, the core um, uh, reasons for our mental stress. And so this, um, this teaching, 
when we hear this, often has us kind of wondering or a little confused at times about, well, aren't I supposed to, I mean, it's like, how can I not be averse to injustice in the world? How can I not want, you know, something to be different in the world when, when it just seems so so wrong or there are unethical things happening? You know, shouldn't, shouldn't I want to change that? And so this points to, there, the, you know, there's a, an understanding that there are different kinds of wanting, um, and the wanting of craving is kind of connected with the tightness and attention and a neediness, a kind of an aversion to things as they are. And so it's, 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 um, it's, it's, it's a kind of a, a contracted kind of, of craving, of wanting. And there is another kind of wanting that's more connected with an open heart, that we could use instead of wanting, uh, we might use the word as- aspiration or um, um, even hope in a way, a kind of a, a movement in a direction towards something. And so there is a, there is a kind of a wanting or a, a movement towards something that is not about hatred or um, neediness, but is instead about compassion and love and generosity. And so the, the shift here around action in the world, I mean, the, you know, when we see some, something unjust in the world, when we see injustice in the world, our habitual response will probably be aversion. And our exploration around this isn't to um, hate our aversion, that's piling hatred onto hatred, but rather to explore opening to, okay, so this is coming up. This experience of aversion is coming up. Can I hold that? Can I, can I notice that? And, and begin to notice that that, that that feeling of hatred or dislike, uh, that kind of pushing away of that um, experience or that situation is kind of bound up not only with the aversion piece, but is also bound up with a part of the mind that basically feels compassion for and care for and love for our fellow human beings. And so our suffering around those things is kind of, of a, a tangle between our habitual response of shouldn't be that way, gotta, you know, and, and the hatred around it, and our kind of motivation around love and care and compassion. And so as we open to being present for those experiences, we may begin to notice and see the, the wholesome side, the, the, the beautiful side of that reaction or response. And so this partly is the, is the pointing. As, as, as we um, begin to explore and get familiar with the, the suffering that's coming in our experience around greed, aversion, and delusion. This is the three kind of uh, roots of, they're, they're kind of connected to craving, greed, aversion, and delusion. As we see that greed, aversion, and delusion are um, creating stress in our experience here and now. That's another piece of, of what the Buddha is pointing to in these first two noble truths. Un- as we understand our own suffering, we see that our own minds are contributing to the stress of the situation. We, feel, we begin to feel here and now the stress of that, the constrictedness of the greed, of the aversion, of the delusion. And we begin that the mind begins to understand that this is added by its own processes, and so this is this is in the the terrain of what the Buddha began to understand as he looked in his own mind and began to question: Is it possible to be free from suffering? And as he explored this, as he looked at kind of my understanding, is he kind of deconstructed the nature of suffering and began to see very deeply that greed, aversion, and delusion were not helping. And, 
as he um, began to, to, to notice that and to um, explore his own mind, he began to see the possibility of those three root motivations. They're very habituated in us, very conditioned, deeply conditioned, these motivations of greed, aversion, and delusion. And he began to see that there's a possibility that those root motivations can fall away. And to our surprise, perhaps, as those root motivations fall away, there's kind of two amazing things. One is that we see that even just small tastes of feeling greed, aversion, and delusion fall away, even for moments, we see how much of what we call suffering is rooted in those three things. And that the experience of being free from greed, aversion, and delusion is a whole different kind of way of being in the world. And an exper- it's an experience of a mind at ease, at peace, and yet not. So this is, that's one side, is that we see that when greed, aversion, and delusion begin to weaken and we get little tastes of greed, aversion, and delusion not being present, our sense of what suffering is radically shifts. And we begin to recognize that the mind can be at ease the mind can be at peace with whatever is happening, with whatever pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience is happening. And so that's one side, is that we see just how much of what we actually call suffering is based in those three functions in our mind. The other thing that we see, the other side that we see, is that having greed, aversion, and delusion fall away doesn't mean that we become like some non-active being. You know, it doesn't mean that we just sit and watch and go, oh, the world as it is. Oh, look at that. People are suffering. Oh, people are doing things that hurt each other. Oh, that's the way it is. Okay. You know, it doesn't mean that we just stop engaging. A peaceful heart is not a non-responsive heart. In fact, it's just the opposite. When greed, aversion, and delusion fall away, the heart that is not filled with greed, aversion, and delusion is really motivated to respond to the world. Not react, but to respond. And so this, even just a a little bit of exploration of how the mind is bound by greed, aversion, and delusion and beginning to see little flavors, little tastes of a, of a weakening or a release of greed, aversion, and delusion give us an understanding of both the, the peace and the openness of heart that come with that release and also where other motivations come from to have us act in the world. So we're not acting out of hatred and anger and and um, greed, but rather out of wisdom, out of generosity, out of compassion, out of love. And yet, this greed, aversion, and delusion are deeply conditioned in our minds. We are trained from... Uh, it's, some of it is trained. Some of it is how our culture, our society responds to the world, what we are encouraged to uh, want and have in our lives. I mean, you take a look at any any advertisement and greed is right there. <laughs> you know, just, just the, 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 the encouragement to consume, the encouragement to have things as a way to be happy. This is just such a part of, of our capitalistic culture that if you're not consuming things, you won't be happy. And so this, you know, so some of it is trained into us, but also some of it is just kind of based in our human system that we, um, you know, we kind of move towards and and very naturally, organically in our, um, you know, from the time of even, um, you know, in, in evolutionary terms, most well, beings, living beings, tend to move towards what's pleasant, 
towards nourishment, towards um, towards things that will keep it alive and away from danger, away from unpleasant. And so this movement towards pleasant, away from unpleasant, has been very foundational in, in the whole evolutionary process. And, and so it's, it's kind of deep, also deep in our system that we move towards what's pleasant. We want it. We move away from what's unpleasant. We don't want it. We want to push it away. And so the, that's very deep in our human system. And yet it is um, in, in some other creatures like, um, you know, like single-celled creatures. They don't have much say in what they do. You know, they, they just, their system is almost like a program. It just will do what it does. And our system is much more flexible and we have some say in our uh, what happens in our minds and how we respond to things. And yet, that that programming is still that the, the kind of the this, the what's what's happening in there is very deep. In terms of that moving, wanting to move towards pleasant, wanting to move away from what's unpleasant, and very quickly in our as a as a baby, we start to learn. Oh, if I you know, if I get this thing, then I feel better. You know, if I get rid of that thing, then I feel better. And so our minds get conditioned to get things that are pleasant, get rid of things that are unpleasant, because it, it makes us feel better in some way. And so this is, again, it's very natural that this will happen. And yet what the Buddha is pointing to in terms of the, the greed, the aversion, and the delusion is that, and, and he says, yes, there is a form of happiness that comes from getting something that's pleasant and getting rid of something that's unpleasant. But it's actually not, it's, it's actually a very unreliable kind of happiness. This is because what we are aiming to get and get rid of are themselves impermanent and unreliable, then the happiness that comes from that is also impermanent and unreliable. And so the, the question that the Buddha was asking is, there, is there a more reliable kind of happiness than simply getting through life, having, you know, having what I want and getting rid of what I don't want. And he discovered in his own exploration that this ending of greed, aversion, and delusion was that happiness, a deeper kind of happiness, a, a, a happiness of a letting go of a neediness. And you don't have to believe me about this, but what I... Uh, you know, this, it's, it, for me at least, you know, b- believing that, it was hard to believe that. It was not intuitive to believe that. And yet for myself, you know, partly at least I think because I'd kind of hit bottom. Uh, you know, it's like everything I had tried, nothing had uh, felt like I was finding the kind of happiness that I was looking for. And I was willing to try something that didn't seem to make any sense, partly because I was meeting some people for whom they said, this is really powerful stuff. You really should try it. And it's like, okay, I don't see how it's going to work, but you know, you seem a lot happier than I do, so let's see. I'll give it a try. And so that's maybe where we begin. We take our faith or confidence from somebody else saying, yeah, this greed, aversion, delusion stuff, it's really in the way. You might look at it. You might explore what does it mean to be with it instead of acting on it. And so this is uh, in the terrain of the, sec- the third and fourth noble truths. The third noble truth, the Buddha pointing to the possibility of the ending of greed, aversion, and delusion, and the happiness that comes from that, a very deep kind of happiness that comes from that. And the fourth noble truth is not just that it takes, you know, that, that uh, you know, just hearing about this, this is a really important piece. It's, it's this understanding this for ourselves isn't just about hearing something. We have to actually look into our own experience and start to explore. The Buddha at one point said, you know, I just point the way. The path, the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the, um, the fourth noble truth, the, there, is a, there is a path to the release of greed, aversion, and delusion, that, that freedom from suffering. He said, I just point the way. You have to do the work. 
it's very, the path analogy is really apt in many ways. Because what is a path? You think of a path through the woods. You know, in order to get where that path is going, you have to walk on the path. You know, you can't just know the path is there and go, oh, well, there's something on the end of that path. You know, you have to walk on the path. But also, you know, in order, in order to um, have that path be there, somebody, actually many people, have to have walked on that path ahead of you. And we, in a way, know. We know that somebody has walked on that path based on the way the path, you know. The, you can tell the difference between deer trails and people trails, you know, in, in the woods. You know, the deer trails kind of peter out at some point, and, and the people trails, you can follow them. They, they, they are well-worn. And so the, the path that the Buddha is pointing to that will lead us to this release from greed, aversion, and delusion has been well-worn. And it is described by this teaching on the Eightfold Path. So the Eightfold Path, no surprise, has eight parts to it. And it is thought of in a couple different ways. First, I'll just name the aspects of the path. Wise view, or wise understanding. And wise intention is the second one. Wise view kind of pointing us in the direction towards the possibility of release from greed, aversion, and delusion. Wise intention, having that um, um, sense that there is a possibility, as in my case, well, you know, not having a direct sense of the possibility, but trusting somebody else. It's like you're trusting somebody else who says, yes, that path gets somewhere. You know, the path in the woods. That goes somewhere. You can follow that path. We may trust that person, you know, if we have a trust in that person, we'll trust them to, to be telling us that truth. And so likewise, for myself, it's like I, I trusted that's, that somebody else said, yes, this is useful. And so stepping onto the path, then our intentions become in line with that direction. So we walk in that direction. So that's, that's a little bit about wise intention. And then another piece of this is the the component of our relationship in the world. So our intention to um, become free from suffering or to release greed, aversion, and delusion. Then the, the next three aspects of the path, wise speech, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, I'm sorry, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. Those three um, um, are kind of a reflection of that commitment to not creating suffering in the world if we are committed to releasing suffering in our own hearts. And so that, that's the next piece, is a, is a commitment to engaging in the world in a non-harming way. And then the last three are wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. And that's kind of bringing back to a mental cultivation uh, that we that we have to actually look into our own minds, our own hearts and minds, in order to understand how greed, aversion, and delusion work in our experience. Simply being told greed, aversion, and delusion are operating and creating suffering isn't enough. So the Buddha said, I point the way, you have to walk the path, and a large part of that is this mental cultivation, the cultivation of a mind that actually can look at greed, aversion, and delusion. And in some ways, this path, the Eightfold Path, is sometimes called the middle way, the middle path. And there are different ways in which it's talked about as being a middle path. But one way we can think about it is that it's... um, in terms of our suffering, in terms of our seeing greed, aversion, and delusion in our minds, and you know, greed, aversion, and delusion basically being the, um, the roots from which all of our reactive emotions spring. Anger, hatred, confusion, irritation, dis- dissatisfaction, annoyance, from the suffering to the obvious. 
Greed, aversion, and delusion are at the root of those. And so we, we begin to um, look at those. And so our habitual response, the middle way, is between our habitual, we've got two kind of habitual responses, typically, around our reactive patterns. They are either to buy into them, to act out on them, to believe that they are somehow going to help us. It's kind of amazing at times, certain kind of reactive patterns. When I really began looking at my self-hatred, for instance, kind of stunning to me that some part of the mind thought it was doing something good for me. And, it, and it, it did. There was a little bit of a belief in a way. And, and one way that my mind understood this at one point is that, you know, as I, as I was beating myself up about something or other, this was, you know, at the, at the, in the first few years of my practice, this was a big part of my exploration, looking at self-hatred and how it worked. And um, one piece of it was this self-judgment of, oh, you're such a bad person. You're, you, you know, you, you just don't do anything right that that kind of movement of mind was attempting to get me to not do something, attempting to get me to um, uh, be the person that other people would like. So it was, it was somehow in a very twisted way trying to make me happy. And yet, boy, was I miserable. So that, that, um, that's one thing that we do, is that acting out on our, our habits and patterns. The other thing that we do is repress, deny those habits and patterns. Kind of pretend they're not there or are unaware of them. And so the middle way is right between the two. And it, it can almost feel like a razor's edge between these two. What does it mean to allow a reactive pattern such as self-hatred and yet not act on it, not, not recondition it, not deepen that pattern, not deepen that habit, and also to not repress it. This is the skill that the, the Eightfold Path helps to teach us. And especially the three components of wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration begin to help us to have that skill. And it is, it's, it's a learning. You know, we will continually, you know, shift into our habit of acting out on and repressing and, and noticing what happens with those and then coming back into awareness and noticing, oh, what, here's what's happening right now. And so the, the Eightfold Path offers us this, the tools that help us find this middle way. So over the course of the weeks, we'll unpack this a lot more. Um, but what I'd like to do now is kind of revisit the Eightfold Path just briefly to talk about each piece just a little bit more, and then I hope to have a few minutes for questions and comments. So the Eightfold Path is structured both as a kind of a, you know, things lead and build on each other in a way. We can understand it as being with wise understanding, an understanding of what it is that we're, what is the direction we're headed in the curiosity about how do greed, aversion, and delusion contribute to suffering. That this, this, is, this, is a, this is actually a piece of the wise understanding. This, this, um, the Buddha pointing to this, greed, aversion, and delusion are really at the root of your suffering. It would be helpful to explore understanding them. It's a very kind of central or uh, key teaching. This is the wisdom that kind of helps us step on the path. And so it's, you know, wisdom begins the path. And with that wisdom, we may start to take action. Our intentions kind of may come into alignment with that. We may decide to start cultivating some of these tools. And in the... um, um, in the wise intention, we are beginning to cultivate intentions that support 
a release of greed, aversion, and delusion and um, begin to help us to hold them. Again, not as a repression. This is so important. This, this, this razor's edge of the middle path. It's so um, um, easy to slip back into our habits around when we hear something like greed, aversion, and delusion need to be understood and will can be released, we, we, we might think, well, oh, greed's arising in the mind. I better not do that. And then we repress it. But that's just applying aversion to greed. And so it really is this, this coming into the middle. And so our intentions are to be in this middle, to explore what does that mean. And then again, you know, the, the, um, the next aspects of the Eightfold Path in terms of a relationship in the world, our relationship to our fellow human beings. These can be understood as following on from that intention. That in, uh, in our intention to move in the direction of releasing greed, aversion, and delusion, we kind of look at where is it most obvious, obviously happening. You know, the, the, uh, the Eightfold Path is kind of structured in a way to help us um, undercut the ways greed, aversion, and delusion functions in our lives. And some of the most obvious ways that greed, aversion function in our lives is in our relationships, in the ways that we act with each other. And so this, um, this exploration around how do we engage with each other? How do we um, speak and act and live with each other? Can we come into harmony there? Can we, can we engage in non-harmful ways? And so this aspect of the Eightfold Path around relationship, it's sometimes um, talked about as being the ethical component of the path, but it's a really pragmatic ethics it's an ethics that is pointing to if we want to have some freedom from greed, aversion, and delusion, then we need to engage in the world in ways that don't encourage greed, aversion, and delusion. And so the, the, um, the ethical section of the path is about our actions in the world, how we speak, why speech, Refraining from speaking falsely, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from divisive speech. And then at the deeper levels, refraining from speech that doesn't serve a purpose, sometimes called idle chatter. And yet I I like to talk about it as speech that doesn't serve a purpose because sometimes what we might call idle chatter is serving a purpose. It is serving a purpose to connect us with somebody we don't know, maybe. And so, you know, to, to, um, that's really what we're looking at, is what, what is um, the underlying intention? Is the underlying intention that of non-harming and connection? So the, in speech, we explore this relationship of... Um, and, and basically the Buddha puts, this, puts the ethical component in terms of refraining from actions, refraining from kinds of speech and kinds of actions, partly because what he's pointing to here is if you're acting in these ways, probably there is greed, aversion, or delusion underneath it. If you are acting in ways that harm, if you are acting in ways that if you are, are speaking if you are lying, if you're telling, fa- speaking falsely, there's probably greed or aversion or delusion underneath it. If you are, although there are, maybe I'll set that to the side. There are times I think that potentially, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing up the extreme condition of, uh, in my mind, in the moment of um, um, Nazi Germany and lying about hiding uh, Jews in your attic. You know, I, I hope I would have the, the courage to lie in that case in terms of, you know, essentially preventing a 
stronger kind of harm to happen were I to tell the truth. And yet there is, there is a consequence to, to that. There is a consequence to that lie in terms of, you know, the mind gets agitated around it. And yet, for me, I would be willing to accept that agitation of mind for the, the greater good of saving a life. And so, you know, the, again, you know, the, the, these teachings are pragmatic teachings around the ethics. We look at, you know, what is the... The Buddha is basically saying, you know, these tend to be motivated from greed, aversion, and delusion. And yet, here we are in a situation, if we're not just, you know, blindly, you know, going forth and and lying about things, but very conscious of what the trade-offs are, um, there there might be times when we would choose to accept the trade-offs around lying. Or, Or some of these others. Although harsh speech... Divisive speech, you know, to me, those are the harsh speech is is speaking in a slanderous way, in a you know, um, speaking in 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 language that is harsh. Um, that you know, there's usually other ways that we can speak. A divisive speech, the intention to divide people. Again, these tend to come from greed, aversion, and delusion. And the idle chatter often is related to delusion. But again, you know, if we see that the underlying purpose is connection, that's, that's, not, that's not coming from delusion. It's just, how do I connect with this person? How do I connect? So, so the um, uh, wise action is also stated in terms of actions to avoid uh, refraining from harming living beings, killing living beings, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from um, uh, creating harm through sexuality. And again, this is looking at if we are serious about releasing greed, aversion, and delusion in our own um, hearts and minds, can we not engage in behaviors that tend to be motivated by them? So this is, is the beginning of our, of, you know, so this can be an understanding of the beginning of the path, that we step onto the path through the kind of more... Um, obvious actions in the world that tend to be motivated by greed, aversion, and delusion, and refraining from those. Now, that doesn't mean that greed, aversion, and delusion stop coming up in the mind. And so this is the next level of the path, of the path that begins to address the, the um, um, the ability to notice how greed, aversion, and delusion manifest in our minds, so our first, our first work may be, and again, in this path, it's, we, we start with the wisdom and the intention to step onto the path, and the first work is to engage in cleaning up our relationship in the world, the more obvious forms of expression of greed, aversion, and delusion. But there are many subtler forms of greed, aversion, and delusion that come up in our minds but don't express in the world. And we start to see that those also cause us suffering. And so this is the, the third section of the Eightfold Path, the mental cultivation, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. We begin to, wise effort is um, an exploration of what is it we're encouraged in wise effort to cultivate those qualities of mind that are counter to greed, aversion, and delusion. We cultivate the wholesome qualities of mind, those based in love and compassion, in joy, in um, uh, wisdom, in generosity. So we're encouraged to find ways to cultivate those and to uh, explore letting go of those qualities, those reactive qualities of mind based in greed, aversion, and delusion. So this is a big part of our, of our practice, is this exploration with wise effort. First of all, beginning to recognize what are those reactive qualities of mind that create suffering. This points back to that very first part of the path, wise view. We begin to see directly, yeah, when um, reactivity arises in the mind, when anger arises in the mind, irritation, even as subtle as annoyance. You know, when those arise in the mind... There is suffering here and now. There is 
that this is this is not in the in the direction towards a heart at peace. So we begin to see that. We begin to recognize that through this exploration of of being with, meeting our experience. We begin to recognize what qualities of heart and mind do contribute to that contraction. And we begin to recognize what leads more in the direction of that letting go of that deeper kind of happiness, a deeper kind of peace. And so this is, this is our learning area, learning what, what supports us to move in the direction of letting go of greed, aversion, and delusion. And so these three aspects of the path, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, it's hard to talk about them independently in a way. We can, we can speak about them independently, but you can't practice them independently <laughs> because in order to, to engage with wise effort, which is this exploration of um, noticing the difference between the wholesome and the unwholesome, where the unwholesome is defined or the unskillful is defined as those states based in greed, aversion, and delusion. And the wholesome is defined in terms of states based in non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. In order to do that exploration, we need mindfulness. We need to be aware of what's happening in the present moment. We have to know what our present moment experience is. And that being mindful of our present moment experience is what begins to give us this education around what is suffering and what is non-suffering. What are these unskillful, unwholesome qualities and what are these wholesome qualities? And so we need the mindfulness to be curious about our experience. And a lot of this work with mindfulness of these is not about, I mean, so the, the, the wise effort points to abandoning and refraining from those unwholesome qualities based in greed, aversion, and delusion. And yet abandoning here, you know, we might think that means pushing away, stopping, telling it to go away. But much more what the abandoning means is abandoning of our usual habits around those, those un- unwholesome qualities about those patterns. So our usual habits around engaging in or repressing. We, we abandon those in favor of being present with that middle, that middle way, being present with those reactive patterns. And this takes some trust because it certainly was not obvious to me how it would work, how being present with anger and self-hatred would do anything. And so this is partly where we, we have to trust. I can tell you from my own experience that using mindfulness to be with, explore, understand what's happening around anger, self-hatred, impatience, a whole host of reactive, reactivity creates conditions for a transformation around them. The mind begins to reorient. And so you may have to um, take that on trust. I certainly did at the beginning. I definitely had to take that on trust. And yet, within a, a few weeks of trying it, I began to understand, actually, this does seem to be helpful. I had no idea how deeply helpful it could be, how deeply transformative it could be. But at least initially, you know, engaging with some of these um, not expressing my anger, instead just, okay, yep, angry, no, I'm angry, wow, yep, okay, boy, that doesn't feel very good. That was kind of the beginning of the exploration. And within a few weeks, there was a lot more capacity to not be swept away by it. And, you know, it's like, well, okay, I don't really know how this is working, but sure, it seems to be working, so I'm going to keep going. And that, you know, that was a kind of a development of trust, of, of confidence in this path. That, and, and then a, a, an opening to how deeply this can transform these patterns in the mind. And so the, the, the wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration takes us from, you know, initial kind of uh, exploration of 
how to be with and hold something, not um, make things worse, essentially. That's a lot of our initial work, is not making things worse. And then, and our life gets so much easier when we stop making things worse. You know, we stop making things worse for ourselves, we stop making things worse for other people. And, and then over time we begin to see, oh, it actually gets better than just not making things worse. Things actually deeply transform. Our hearts and minds begin to deeply release these patterns. And so the transformation that's possible with the, the mindfulness of our um, what's wholesome, what's unwholesome, what's skillful, what's unskillful, and, and part of that comes as the mind gets much more able to be continuously and steadily present. That the concentration, the wise concentration, is, is um, when the mindfulness becomes more, more present, more stable. That's when the transformation kind of begins to uproot even the movements in the direction of these habits of mind. So um, that's a quick overview of these path factors. And one piece I, oh, the last piece I'll bring in is I I talked about them kind of as being sequential in a way. And yet we can't really look at them as sequential. I mean, we can kind of understand them as building on each other. And yet if we are practicing wise speech... If we're practicing that engagement with refraining from false speech, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from divisive speech, it takes mindfulness to do that. It, it takes a kind of an orientation towards the intention to not put suffering into the world, an orientation around the wisdom that the Buddha is offering, that this is useful. And... Um, it brings in the, the effort to refrain from doing something that is harmful. It helps us to understand in the moment what might be motivating that speech. A, a movement of fear or confusion or anger might be motivating that speech, and we, we may see that. And so that, that's bringing in wise mindfulness and wise effort. And so we can't really pull one out and say, oh, I'm just going to practice this one. Because as we practice any one, and you could pick any one and say, that's the one I'm going to focus on. My speech, that sounds useful in my life. I'm going to work on that one. And you will see the benefits of the cultivation of all of them. Because I like the, the fact that it's termed the eightfold path in a way. It's like, you know, they're all folded on each other. You, you know, they, 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 they touch each other. You pu- pull any one out and you are touching all of them. And so they, they do interweave. It's some, sometimes people talk about it as being like eight strands of a rope that connect and strengthen the rope together. So we have just a couple minutes if there's any questions or comments. Yeah. Yes? Yes? Okay. Uh, my name is Christy, and my question for you is, when you talked about, I think you said it took a few weeks for me to realize that this path could be transformative. Were you able to reach that through daily sittings, or did it require more going on retreat and really sinking into it more? Um, there's a, it's even more hopeful than either of those in some ways. <laughs> Um, so initially, I was not at all interested in sitting meditation. A friend sent me a book, and I began looking at this in my daily life. And I picked anger as being my main thing, because that was what was making me non-functional. And I was very interested in understanding the anger, you know, in, in something. Is there anything that might help with this anger just, you know, raging out of control? And so I, you know, received this book and got this little tiny bit of information, tried just knowing it's there rather than, you know, reinforcing it with thoughts, etc. So feel into the experience of anger. 
that was all I got from that book, actually. Um, and that's what I started practicing with. And I made the commitment that any time I noticed anger, I would do that. And so I did that for a few weeks and um, began recognizing that just that, so the, the first bit of, of feedback I got was that pretty much the, when I first started this, I would regularly find myself non-functional. I would be frozen in a rage and not, it, not doing anything. I was just looped in the mind in the rage sitting in front of my computer, just frozen. And um, almost immediately, like within days after starting this, that stopped. And it became much more manageable I, and began to just notice, oh yeah, this is okay, anger's here, whoa, it doesn't feel very good, okay. And then within a few months of practice, I saw much more deeply, again, in daily life, much more deeply into how um, a thought in the mind, I mean, I remember so clearly the experience, seeing a thought in the mind heading me in the direction of anger, seen before the anger was there. Was, and so that, that moment of seeing the, the, the kind of the intention or the inclination to head towards anger, the mind in that moment, having spent, you know, the couple months really getting to know, yeah, when anger comes, boy, it doesn't feel very good. In that moment of seeing the mind kind of heading in the direction of, yeah, I want to pick up that thought and think more thoughts to get angry at that person, the mind just said, oh, I don't think we're going to go there. And it let it go. And it wasn't me that let it go. It was the understanding that let it go. That all happened before I ever sat down in meditation. Um, and I think a lot of it was, you know, some of it was the commitment. <laughs> I was so at the bottom. You know, it's like nothing else has worked. I'm willing to try anything. And so the transformation that can happen can happen in daily life as well. So... Thank you for the question. And, um, yeah, we'll continue next week. Thank you. Oh, next week? I may not be here next week. <laughs> I may be away for a while. I'm going off to teach uh, at IMS for a few weeks. But we'll continue when I come back. <laughs> Thank you. Let me stop the recording. I found this. T-